Greetings and welcome to the Cathartic Yardstick with your hosts, Ray and Mark. In this episode, your intrepid hosts examine the recently released government report on unidentified aerial phenomena. Just think, Neil Armstrong was the first astronaut on the moon. Neil A, spelled backward, is alien. Happenstance? I think not. Well, <clears throat> how do you Welcome want to, to the cathartic yardstick? What? I'm sorry. <laughs> take, take two. Take two. Let's try again. Welcome to the cathartic yardstick podcast with Ray and Mark. I'm Ray. I'm Mark. And this is the podcast. And tonight we are talking about UFOs or UAPs. Unidentified aerial phenomenon. Right. And, and last was last week, week before. Uh, now they you know re- released the official report, w- which was like seven pages that basically described uh, the current state of uh, of analysis for for UAPs. Uh, they're generally not calling them UFOs, probably because of just the association with that. And this was you know part of a spending bill, and it came out. And we're just going to talk about what what we got out of it and, and what the report said. So I will turn that over to Mark to break it down. Sure. It was a nothing burger and an everything burger all in once, I think. The UAP report came out on the 25th of June. And what we're going to basically cover is uh, the report was done by the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. So ATIP, you'll hear us talking about that. Um, So we'll talk about the origins of ATIP, the origins of the report. We'll do an overview of the report and what the significant takeaways are. Uh, we'll talk about next steps, what the government's doing next. And have a little chat about what's out there. And then you get thoughts from your intrepid hosts. Basically, um, ATIP is an unclassified investigatory effort that was funded by the government to study unexplained aerial phenomenon. Um, this current program, you've heard about Project Blue Book, which wrapped up in 1969. Uh, this program here uh, on ATIP began in 2007 at the behest of Senator Harry Reid from Nevada. He was Senate Majority Leader, and he gave $22 million in funding for five years to the Defense Intelligence Agency. And then after the five-year period ended in 2012, the program continued as the UAP Task Force. Now, one name you're going to hear us refer to, or me refer to, a bunch is uh, Luis Elizondo. Um, Elizondo served in the Army for 20 years, was involved in military intelligence operations in Afghanistan, South America, Guantanamo Bay. And then between 2008 until his resignation in 2017, Elizondo worked with the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence as the director of ATIP. So when you read articles, you'll hear that his uh, credibility is sometimes criticized. But from my vantage point, working for the federal government, if you've been an enlisted operator in military intelligence for 20 years, and then you get hired to work at the Pentagon, um, at the Office of the Secretary of Defense level, as a, uh, a general Schedule 15 employee, which is a civilian equivalent to about a colonel in the military, as a program director, and you did that for nine years, you can't be too far off the beam. Um, supposedly, he resigned because the program wasn't being taken seriously. He wanted to get a briefing to the then Secretary of Defense, James Mattis, 
but uh, Mattis's inner circle wouldn't let him take the briefing just because you don't want to get associated with UFO stuff. And he got, uh, and um, Elizondo got sick of that runaround, so he finally resigned. The program also funded 38 studies to include interesting topics such as detection and high-resolution tracking of vehicles at hypersonic velocities and warp drive, dark energy, manipulation of extra dimensions, and traversable wormholes, stargates, and negative energy. And that might be kind of a helpful clue into some of their thinking or speculation as to where these UAP may be coming from. Another one of those papers was called Clinical, Medical, Acute, and Subacute Feel Effects on Human Dermal and Neurological Tissues. It was written by uh, Christopher Green, who was a former CIA agent, clinician, and neuroscientist who described it as focused on forensically assessing accounts of injuries that could have resulted from claimed encounters with UAPs. Now, ATIP's successor program uh, was called the Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon Task Force. It was made public in June 2020 in hearings before the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. Uh, the materials studied by ATIP have been the subject of different classified hearings aimed at identifying and understanding the potential threats to the safety and security of aviators. While the contents of the briefings are classified, Senator Mark Warner from the Senate Intelligence Committee requested further research into unexplained interference in the air that could pose safety concerns for naval pilots. Now, there's an odd twist to this, as if this weren't odd enough. We've seen a lot of Louis Elizondo in the media, and some are questioning whether he's credible, as he's now dedicated to TV appearances instead of approaching Congress with this issue. After he left the Department of Defense, he went to work with a media company called To The Stars, which was founded by Jim Semivan, a former senior intelligence officer with the CIA. But he also teamed up with guitarist from the band Blink-182, Tom DeLonge. Um, but one of the advisors to the To The Stars company that Alonzo worked with was uh, Christopher Mellon. And, uh, you know, Mellon is from this rich family, the Carnegie Mellons, you know. He served for 12 years in a variety of positions on Capitol Hill, including nearly 10, 10 years as a professional staff member and staff director of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. He also served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Intelligence, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Security and Information Operations, and he's provided advice on a range of intelligence issues. So Elizondo is definitely, you know, not only surrounding himself with interesting figures like, you know, a guitarist from Blink-182, but also these are pretty big gun people within the Department of Defense as alumni, and they're basically supporting his version of events, and so I think that lends it a lot of credibility. I find it interesting that, that Harry Reid was originally the, the person pushing a lot of this because, you know, he's from Nevada, which is famous for being a home of Area 51 and Area S4 and Grooms Lake, and it's probably the most significant location in UFO lore other than uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force, or Air, Air Force Base, which was the home of Blue Book, and where they allegedly also are supposed to have some wreckage and, and maybe some aliens. So it's interesting that he's one of the champions of this, this issue. Uh, so did, did he know something? Was he just curious? Uh, I don't know. Well, it's interesting. I read an article about how he, get, how he got involved. It says, apparently, Robert Bigelow, who was a Nevada real estate magnate who was uh, interested in UFOlogy, started hosting meetings in 1995, getting 
name people together to try to get UFO discussion more mainstream. Bigelow had founded uh, Bigelow Aerospace, and he called his group the National Institute for Discovery Science, NIDS, and they're the ones that reached out to current and former legislators from Nevada. And Harry Reid was, uh, was one of those. Um, hmm. The group's co-founder was John Alexander, a retired Army officer who worked at Los Alamos National Laboratory. He had published books and articles on various aspects of UFOlogy and the paranormal. There was another guy, Hal Putoff, who was an engineer and self-described parapsychologist who at the Stanford Research Institute in the 70s and 80s had helped the CIA with those studies on remote viewing, you know, or using the human mind to sense objects or events far away. This group attracted former astronauts uh, Ed Mitchell and Harrison Schmidt, and Schmidt had also served as a U.S. senator from New Mexico. They were willing to get involved with it, and they didn't really care about much reputational harm. But there was a TV journalist, George Knapp, from out in Nevada, and supposedly he's the one that roped Reed into it. And uh, Reed said he had always had an interest in UFOs, so he agreed to get involved with the group um, as long as they kept it secret. Um, so Reed, Reed kind of stuck his neck out because he was like Senate Majority Leader. Yeah, interesting. So in terms of the report origins, apparently in uh, 2020, Marco Rubio, as acting chairman of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, included language in the Intelligence Authorization Act for fiscal year 2021, directing the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, ODNI, to submit a report to the Congressional Intelligence and Armed Services Committee on Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon. Uh, what Rubio had said at the time was he said, there's stuff flying in our aerospace and we don't know what it is or whose it is, and it's not ours. So we ought to know what it is and who, whose it is, especially if it's an adversary that made a technological leap. How can we have stuff flying over restricted military airspace and not even be curious, not to mention concerned about who it is and why they're here? Yeah, and getting back to, you know, Project Blue Book and, and, and Wright-Patterson, I mean, the justification for that report, uh, which w the, the project went from uh, 52 to 69, was pretty much the same. You know, there, there are reports of all the stuff in the air. Does it pose a threat to, uh, to national security or just, just safety of, you know, airliners flying through the space? So we, we've been down this road before, but this one ended up a little bit different. Right. Yeah. The, the interesting thing is, is, whereas the strategic communications around Blue Book was just dismiss it as swamp gas, um, you know, an erroneous sighting of a planet and mistaking it for a right. UFO. Instead of right. that, like it's... A, yeah, Venus. And, you know, what, what trained fighter pilots going to think, you know, Venus is following them around? Yeah. I mean, they're, they're trained observers. So, you know, they know some of the goofy stuff they normally see and they know what stuff they don't normally see. So, uh, but now the message seems to be there's actual physical objects um, we just need to learn more about them to figure out why are they appearing, whose are they. Uh, so it's interesting. So the report overview and significant takeaways, you know, imagine yourself reading through this report. And um, every time I ran across a significant thing, I kind of wrote it down. So it came out on June 25th. It was only nine pages long. But the, the main points I saw was at first it's titled Preliminary Assessment, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon. So preliminary assessment, we may well see uh, more reports that follow. They said the stated purpose of the report is to provide an overview for policymakers 
on the challenges associated with characterizing the potential threat posed by UAP, while also providing a means to develop relevant processes, policies, technology, and training for military and other U.S. government personnel if and when they encounter UAP, so we can enhance the intelligence community's ability to understand the threat. So again, unlike the strategic communications since 1947, which was to dismiss UFO reports, um, now we have like a 180 on the part of the government. The government's acknowledging that the sightings seem to be real and they can't be explained. So we need a plan to start figuring out what the heck these things are. The data the report collects is really from November of 2004 to March of 2021, and the bulk of the sightings that they cover have been in the past couple years. And they say really that's because the Navy didn't develop UAP standardized reporting until March 2019, and the Air Force uh, didn't develop standardized reporting until November of 20. So that's the, why there's a limited window of, uh, of analysis. Um, they said, so it's just a snapshot in time. Let me see. Uh, the task force and ODNI national intelligence manager for aviation drafted the report with input from a lot of pretty in the know entities like undersecretary of defense, defense for intelligence and security, defense intelligence agency, FBI, national reconnaissance office, national geospatial agency, national security agency, Air Force, Army, Navy, Navy Office of Naval Intelligence. Uh, here's a big one, DARPA, uh, Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, the FAA, uh, NOAA, our weather friends, uh, ODNI National Intelligence Manager for e Emerging and Disruptive Technology. That's an interesting one. ODNI National Counterintelligence and Security Center and the ODNI National Intelligence Council. So it's coordinated with all the heavy hitters. And they also have assumptions in here that uh, we're going to assume that the variety of sensor input we have capture enough data to do an initial assessment. But some of the UAP sightings that we pick up uh, could possibly be explained as sensor anomalies. The executive summary that just kind of captures the bottom line of the whole report, they said that um, our efforts were hampered by the lack of high-quality reporting on UAP. As a result, our efforts were centered on the period 2004 to 2021 using a new tailored reporting process to better capture UAP events through formal reporting. They said most of the UAP reported probably do represent physical objects, uh, given that a majority of UAP were registered across multiple sensor platforms. In a limited number of incidents, UAP reported uh, reportedly appeared to exhibit unusual flight characteristics. These observations could possibly be the result of sensor errors, uh, spoofing, which would be you know uh, an, an, what an enemy would do to kind of trick trick our observation, like uh, jamming that kind of thing, or observer misperception and require additional rigorous analysis. Specific findings: They said there's probably multiple types of UAP. Uh, requiring different explanations based on the range of appearances and behaviors described in the available reporting. Their analysis of the data uh, supports the construct that if and when individual UAP incidents are resolved, they'll fall in one of five potential explanatory categories. Airborne clutter, natural atmospheric phenomenon, 
government or industry developmental programs, foreign adversary systems, or catch-all other bin. And they're very careful not to say what the other bin is, just none of the previous. Yeah, it's not specified at all. Yeah. Uh, Another big point here is they said UAP clearly possess a safety of flight issue and may pose a challenge to U.S. national security. Safety concerns primarily center on aviators contending with an increasingly cluttered air domain. UAP would also represent a national security challenge if they are foreign adversary collection platforms or provide evidence of a potential adversary who's developed either a breakthrough or disruptive technology. So they think that consistent consolidation of reports from across the federal government, standardized reporting, um, increased collection and analysis, and a streamlined process for screening all the reports against a broad range of relevant government data will allow for a more sophisticated analysis of UAP Uh, And that's likely to deepen our understanding, Um, but that would require some additional investment. They said they analyzed 144 reports, um, of which 80 were tracked with multiple sensor platforms. They talk about how the sensors mounted on aircraft platforms are designed to fulfill specific missions, like, you know, tracking an object so you can fire a missile at it. Um, They're not designed to take a high resolution photograph so you can make out detail so when people are saying why are we only seeing these grainy footages or grainy footage of these objects it's because it's being taken by a system not designed to take high resolution photos it's meant to track a target so you can fire a missile at it they're not visually identifying things they're locking uh locking on as a target they're looking at the uh whatever they have is the electromagnetic profile of this thing or a warmer or colder object, you know, thermal mm-hmm. tracking. You know, it's not meant to be a high-resolution kind of photo. They said a, a relative handful of these UAP appear to demonstrate advanced technology. There were 18 incidents described in 21 reports where observers reported unusual UAP movement patterns or flight characteristics. Uh, some UAP appeared to remain stationary despite winds aloft. They would move against the wind, maneuver abruptly, or move at considerable speed, all without any discernible flight control services or means of propulsion. In a small number of cases, uh, aircraft systems also processed radio frequency energy associated with UAP sightings, so a type of, a type of jamming effort. Uh, the task force holds a small amount of data that appear to show UAP demonstrating acceleration uh, or in a degree of signature management, so managing their visibility, kind of like a cloaking system or camouflaging system. So they say that additional rigorous analysis is necessary by multiple teams or groups of technical experts to determine if uh, the nature and validity of the data. They basically go through the, the five categories of possibilities, airborne clutter like birds, balloons, recreational UAV or airborne debris, such as plastic bags that create visual clutter, natural atmospheric phenomenon, such as ice crystals, moisture, thermal fluctuation that might register on some infrared and radar system, government or industry developmental programs, you know, possible. um, But the group says that we were unable to confirm that these systems accounted for any of the UAP reports we collected, which is an interesting way to phrase it. 
They're not basically saying um, our agencies deny the existence of any experimental programs. It's just when you lay out where the tests were happening and when, um, we don't see any any of those explanations that might account for these these particular sightings. Uh, foreign adversary systems, uh, technologies deployed by Russia or China or a non-governmental entity, and then a catch-all other bin. And uh, here, you know, they they basically say that we don't want to get too far into speculating about what is in the other bin because as soon as you start speculating, you're taking other possibilities off the table. So they're basically saying it's much wiser to leave everything on the table until you have enough evidence to take things off. But a, um, a big final conclusion to this thing is that UAP pose a hazard to safety of flight and could pose a broader danger to national security if some instances represent sophisticated collection against U.S. military activities by a foreign government or demonstrate a breakthrough aerospace technology by a potential adversary. So uh, the, the UAP task force has 11 reports of documented instances in which pilots reported near misses with a UAP, uh, but they currently lack any data that the UAPs are tied to a foreign collection program or any indication that they represent a major technological advancement by a potential adv- adversary, but they continue to, uh, to monitor that. So interesting. It, it is. Uh, so, you know, you can kind of factor that down to the, the five categories to, to two, really. It's things we know and, and things we don't. Um, you know, I would have liked if they maybe speculated a, a little bit about what it could be. Extraterrestrial craft, uh, interdimensional craft, things like that. But I mean, that's not really their focus. I think we should just be thankful that, you know, they're acknowledging that these things are real and, and they do pose a threat in that they're, they're operating in the same airspace as, as military and c- civilian aircraft. Right. One of the things that interested me in the whole thing, um, you know, there is, a, uh, there is a classified, this was the unclassified version of the report, and it was just a couple pages. There was a 200-page classified version that members of Congress got. And uh, I was thinking that probably has more of the, the tactical information because that's one thing they are good at collecting. You know, the speed of these objects, the direction they're moving, turning radius, uh, stopping, starting, signature management, which is really interesting that they're, you know, they're trying to be stealthy. So uh, that would be interesting to see, but I, I don't know if that'll ever happen. Right. I, I would imagine a lot of the classified stuff is l- the stuff that would logically you'd want classified, but things like here are the different sensor platforms we pick these things up on. You don't want to, you don't want the adversary to know what kind of platforms we have and where they're located. For example, mm-hmm. you know how close something has to be before we pick it up. You know, so anything about means and methods um, is probably a smart thing for them to to keep classified. But I'll be fascinated to hear what else comes out. And the one thing as I as we keep going through this. I don't know this is where they're going, but you look at some of those studies the task force has commissioned, and you listen to some of the discussion, and um, you keep hearing things like they could come from outer space, inner space, you know, um, or anywhere in between. And you keep hearing about the idea that um, it it could be a native phenomenon to Earth. Um, We're aware of the dimension we're in, but that's all we're aware of. And so right. what we may actually be seeing are other Earth forces or people, but it's just an interdimensional thing. 
And I, I, I find that fascinating. On, on one of the tapes that, that was released, that the, the Navy said, this is genuine, this is real, this really happened, and um, this is unexplained, I think it was the Tic Tac one. One yeah. of the other pilots says, there's a, there's a whole squadron of them out here. You see, they're all over the place. What the task force wants to do in their long-range goal is to widen the scope of its work by trying to get a broader swath of the U.S. government personnel and technical systems into its analysis. The, the task force is already starting to receive data from the FAA, so they're asking for additional funding for these artificial intelligence screening systems and all that uh, to be laid out, which is kind of typical for government, huh? It sure is. I, I've never been uh, on a evaluation or research project where one of the conclusions wasn't uh, more funding is needed or more, more research is needed. So, you know, they all become uh, self-perpetuating at some point. Yep. Any government bureaucracy will do that. But uh, in terms of what's out there, um, I was looking at a few interviews that Louis Elizondo had done and Christopher Mellon had done, and they, they dovetail each other. They don't, uh, they don't contradict each other. But interesting tidbits that come out of them, like one of the reports was Elizondo with the Washington Post, is that UAPs appear interested in our nuclear capabilities, and there's also an interest in water. Now, the interest in nuclear capabilities, you know, that might be, uh, you know, information bias that comes from the fact that we, we have these nuclear carrier groups that are probably doing most of the snooping and monitoring, <laughs> you know, using the, the most uh, technically advanced sensors. So it would make sense that they would see the most. It's kind of funny that that's also usually the premise for a lot of, you know, sci science fiction movies where uh, the aliens come to Earth because we're a threat now that we have nuclear capabilities or right. they have no water and they want our water. They want our water. Yeah. Or it's a cookbook. <laughs> they want us. <laughs> yeah. They want to invite us for dinner. <laughs> um, but, but they talk about uh, another commonality, hypersonic velocities, so Mach 5 and above, and uh, with instantaneous directional changes. So they say that a human being can stand about 9 Gs, and the typical fighter jet you know, has like, let's say, 16 Gs or something like that before it breaks up. These pull between 3 and 600 Gs, um, and so that's pretty amazing. Cloaking, low visibility capability, multi-domain capability between space, air, and water. Um, and what's amazing about this, and Elizondo talks about it, it he said, anytime you want an object to function in multi-domains, he goes, think of a seaplane. It's not a particularly you know, aerodynamic aircraft, and it's also not a particularly effective boat uh, because it's designed to function in both mediums. But with these things, they seem to go between the domains with no functional compromise. Um, there's been undersea monitoring systems that have supposedly uh, clocked these underwater UAPs moving at 250 knots underwater. That's crazy. It is. And they said that we're fairly certain it's not Russian or Chinese technology. Uh, they said when the USSR collapsed, they did get some documents that were indicating that the Soviets were having UFO sightings just like we were. And they said it's not really likely that another country could develop technology and not get caught testing it or using it for over 70 years. And they said, you know, also, if you had technology that was that dominant, the first thing a country would do is kind of scale back the size of its military 
because that's a huge financial drain and you don't really need a really big military if you have dominant technology like that. But that's not Mm -hmm. what nations have done. They've been building up their militaries. So, you know, they say, again, it could be from outer space. They don't know. could be inner space, natural to the earth or somewhere in between. Uh, He points out that much of the universe you can't interact with because our senses can't see or feel something. So radar waves, cosmic radiation. He says, we, we can see stars, but it takes special telescopes to let you see nebula. So he says, we need to keep the options open. And he points out again, quantum physics are full of loops and shortcuts, which kind of raises the interdimensional thing. Elizondo said, it's, he, he conclusively told the Washington Post, he goes, it's not secret US tech that's been taken off the table. And so I don't know if it's that black and white, but he did make that statement. And the other thing I thought was pretty freaky, and it didn't show up in the report, was he said there's some indication that they can interfere with our nuclear systems, both turning systems off and then turning certain systems on. So it's definitely a concern. He says they're getting bolder, appearing more often for longer, and coming closer as if what they're doing is trying to test what our response capabilities are. So that's what the report was about. And it's pretty freaky, I think. It's fascinating. Uh, It really is. And, you know, if you look at how how Blue Book ended, they they pretty much were dismissive of all the claims. And they said it was weather phenomena, uh, natural phenomena. They attributed a lot of the sightings to either uh, U-2 planes or the A-12 planes, um, you know, the high-altitude spy planes. That wasn't the case this time. They, They honestly said, we don't know what this is, and, and it does pose a threat. Yeah, so hu- huge paradigm shift. Um, yes, so I think absolutely. That's the everything burger, and we're going to be hearing more about it. And, and when, you, when you read through this, um, you kind of get the sensing of that's probably why Elizondo chose to spend his time getting the public energized, because it's gotten to the point where the public is going to de- be demanding answers, and the government has to be responsive to the public. So rather than let anybody stonewall or dismiss it as swamp gas. Now you got to develop answers to all this. Right. So. Yeah, I was I was thinking earlier today. Uh, there's also a lot more people in space now, uh, and a lot more private companies. And you know, back in the 50s and 60s, the only people in space were were pretty much NASA and right. other governments. And if you saw something on a NASA flight, you could very easily be be told not to discuss discuss it. But you know, if, if uh, if Elon Musk is up there and spots something unusual or, or uh, uh, Sir Richard Branson or one of those other people, um, it, people are going to hear about it. So I, I think it's going to be hard to hide more stuff in the future as more and more people go into space. Right, right. And so I, th- I think what we're going to see here is we're going to see more aircraft that have like high resolution cameras strapped into them. Um, they're going to see where there's clusters of sightings and probably have more ground sensors designed just to watch the skies for these things and try to collect data. So what do you think it is, Ray? I I don't know, but you know that there's this uh, concept in the UFO community about disclosure and that eventually the government was going to have to do it. In the, the, let's see, what year was it? 1968, the the RAND Corporation issued a report. uh, It was kind of like this. There was a public part of it, but there was a part that was classified uh, called UFOs, What to Do. At the time, the the government decided that uh, it was best not to make disclosure. Uh, The report concluded that if people knew that we were not alone in the universe and that there were uh, uh, extraterrestrial biological entities, 
in our space, sharing the space with us, that people would freak out, that society would collapse. Uh, they were really concerned about that. Now they're probably thinking that if an alien society took us over, that we'd, we'd probably run more effectively than humans probably, governing yeah. themselves. <laughs> <laughs> well, another thing I, I saw the other day was uh, somebody said that probably the only thing that would unite us uh, in our current state would be, uh, would be aliens that we'd have to fight as an enemy. Yeah. An external external threat. So, what, what's interesting too is aside from the the government uh, change in philosophy about these things, is I, I heard multiple uh, sources like pilots and Elizondo and stuff basically saying this thing, this thing, this object was there and it wanted to be seen. You know, it, it clearly wasn't evading. It was it was picking right. the most obvious spot to be to be seen. And so it all kind of falls into that they want to be seen. They're they're testing us. And I'm thinking, for what? <laughs> <laughs> for you know, doneness. For yeah, doneness. In which case, <laughs> this podcast will be discontinued. <laughs> so I'm yeah, kinda I'm kinda leaning towards something interdimensional. Yeah. There was that, that footage uh, taken from a ship. Uh, was a round object that's kind of moving off on the horizon really fast. And they say it splashes down, but it doesn't really look like that. It looks like it, it winks out. It, it's like right close to the water. And it kind of kind of flashes, then you don't see it, then you see it for a second, and then it's mm. just gone. Um, it, it's as if it just phases out completely. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. You know, you listen to the background noises to that, and it sounds like it's shipboard audio. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just kind of like defer to the people who normally watch that screen, what a splashdown yeah. looks like. But yeah, I mean, who knows what, what they're doing, but it's kind of interesting that they do pick these things up, or they have picked them up underwater. So is there some kind of underwater presence that we're unaware of? I mean, that's all just fascinating stuff. But, but I'm thinking if, if it did turn out to be something interdimensional, um, it could, to, in my mind, that might explain the abrupt, super fast movements. It's appearing that they're running that fast to our eyes, but what they're really doing is right. changing from one dimension to another, and it's creating that optical effect. Kind of like, kind of like warp drive in the Star Trek movies. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know how you could move at 250 knots underwater without like some sort of warp drive. Just the friction alone from the water. I, I, I don't know how that would even be possible. It, exactly. And that's one of the one of the things they're one of the points they're making is that these objects move in a way that doesn't comport with our understanding of physics on the Earth. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's an exact that's a perfect example. You know, it's like, yeah, normally we'd encounter friction. Maybe they're not. It's like, why not? I don't know, but, um, but definitely it sounds interesting to me when it gets to the point where the government says, yeah, we think these are solid objects. We just don't know where they're coming from. Wow. That's significant. Yeah. And, and we have to understand them because, uh, it could cause problems if we don't. Exactly. Um, and one, one comment that, uh, I think it was Christopher Mellon had made was he basically said that, um, these things pan out to be real. We're talking about the biggest intelligence failure since 9-11 that these things have had just yeah, their, yeah. their way with us for this long and we haven't been nosing around to try to figure it out. It's unacceptable. They just could be so far ahead of us that they've been hidden the whole time. And like, as you said before, that they want to be seen now. Yeah. I don't know. 
Yeah, the, the question would be why. Because one thing Mellon does talk about, too, is he says, it'd be one thing if you show me a fighter aircraft that's just light years ahead of what we have now. I would say that we're working next generation technology. And this one is several generations out from what we're working. He says, but what we're seeing is not, is not a difference of generation. It's a difference in kind, uh, which I thought was an interesting way to put it. Yeah. And then I had, had a thought that, uh, you know, I, I've written, written some code in my day. And uh, a lot of times when you're writing code, you put in test routines. I'm like, what if this is all just a test routine that accidentally got released? <laughs> and, and it's just the test routine for, for an object moving that fast that everyone's picking up. <laughs> Oops, we're sorry. <laughs> yep. All those previous reports. Someone forgot to comment that code out before it was released uh, you know, on the next build. Yeah, it was, it was one interview I think Elizondo gave, but it was funny. He was talking about, he says, you have to keep all options on the table and you have to be careful about how you hypothesize about things because you know and he talked about that one case where they were picking up that definitely repeating signal um mm -hmm. years back and it turned out to be a microwave in the snack room <laughs> right <laughs> somebody's too too impatient to wait for the popcorn cycle to run so they're opening the door while it's still running so any final observations uh it's it's interesting it, it has the potential to, to pretty much change our understanding of, of the universe in, in a way. I'm, you know, this stuff has been dismissed for so long. You know, it's the stuff of science fiction. People like to think about it. But uh, the other thing is some people are saying that, you know, we should kind of keep quiet about it. And we, maybe we don't want to be seen. Maybe we, we don't want to be found. Because at the yeah. same time, you know, we're reaching out, trying to make contact out there. And uh, they may not be friendly. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, was, that was the other thing, talking about uh, look at the history of exploration and discovery on planet Earth. You know, the Europeans come to North America. How did that work for the Native Americans? Yeah. So sometimes right. if somebody's exploring your turf, you know, it may not be good. And that's one thing I thought I always thought was a little bit reckless, you know, in Voyager, them sending uh, all that Earth information out there. It's like, you better hope right. you run into somebody friendly and not the Klingons, you know. Right, with with a map back. Yeah, thank you. Thank yeah. you so much, NASA. My <laughs> tax dollars at work. Come see us. <laughs> yeah. yes. So do you do you find the government one eighty credible? Like well they're on the ver they're on something. Yeah. Yes and, and no. It's it's either either they really are changing and thinking that they can't hide this much longer, or it's just a smoke screen for uh, supersonic research that's going on, yeah. you know, hypersonic stuff. So uh, Roswell was a cover-up for a government research program. Mm -hmm. So is this the same sort of thing? Who knows? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. I had a point, but I'm too old to remember what it was. It was uh, something that Elizondo said on that. But uh, yeah, I can't remember. Well, I want to be I want to be around for first contact. Yeah, whenever that happens, provided it's good, yeah, right? If it's yeah. bad first contact, like Independence Day, I don't want right. to be here. I don't want to be here. Oh, uh, I, I know, I know. What Elizondo was saying was that um, it, you know he says the more he looks at the evidence and and some of the you know some of the easiest explanations, kind of looking less probable. He says it's becoming 
increasingly probable that what the truth is is going to be something pretty profound. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the way he left it. So who knows? Yeah, it's like in the movie Contact where they talk about Occam's razor, you know, all things yep. being equal, you know, the simplest explanation is usually right. But he's kind of saying that that's not the case here. That the yeah. simplest explanation doesn't cover what they're seeing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and intuitively, I think people kind of knew that. I mean, I mean, with Blue Book and stuff, you, know, you talk about the movement of U.S. Oh, it's a swamp gas. Mm-hmm. You know, on right. some level, it just wasn't ringing accurate. It, it sounded like an affirmative dismissal rather than a serious discussion of we've investigated and here's what we think. So I don't know. I don't know. It's going to be very interesting to see future reports. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. And and if they do, you know, develop the observation systems they need to, to capture this better, uh, it'll be interesting to see what they come up with. For sure. For sure. Definitely. We'll get more video. It was uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, I think, was talking about, you know, what makes him skeptical. He says, you know, with the advent of cell phones, uh, he would expect to see videos like all over the place um, mm-hmm. of UFO sightings. And, and I kind of think about it and I, I think we are getting videos, <laughs> a lot of cell yeah. phone videos, different lights in the sky. But the question is, what are yeah. they? Yeah, because they're far enough away where we don't get that granularity of something landing in our backyard, you know, where you can see exact shapes and dimensions and stuff. Yeah. So. Don't know. Brave new world. Indeed. You've been listening to the Cathartic Yardstick Podcast. Join us again. We're total professionals. He's from Nevada, which is the home of... Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Night tracks. Uh, I I was trying to cough. (laughs) 